Good morning. Scott Luton here with you on this edition of This Week in Business History. Welcome to today's show. On this program, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we take a look back at the upcoming week, and then we share some of the most relevant events and milestones from years past. Of course, mostly business-focused, with a little dab of global supply chain, and occasionally, we might just throw in a good story outside of our primary realm. So I invite you to join me on this look back in history to identify some of the most significant leaders, companies, innovations, and perhaps lessons learned in our collective business journey. Now, let's dive in to this week in business history. Hello, and thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Scott Luton, and welcome to this edition of This Week in Business History for May 5th. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Hey, did you catch Nick Rumor's episode last week? I really enjoyed his show, and especially his passion. If you know anything about Nick, then you know that he's especially passionate about taking action and driving real change from a sustainability and climate change perspective. One other leader that is passionate about driving change is Enrique Alvarez with Vector Global Logistics. We are proud to support a recent initiative that Vector is leading to help our friends in India that are fighting against COVID-19. Please take a moment to check out the link in the show notes below for how you can join us in this critical initiative. Speaking of inspiring business leaders, Greg White and I were fortunate to continue our Supply Chain Leadership Across Africa series this past week, where we featured two very inspiring business leaders, Jenny Froome with Sapix, based in South Africa, and Azuka Ego Chuku Elue with Kimberly Clark, based in Nigeria, who goes by Azuka for short. Fascinating and uplifting conversation. They both shared so much perspective. Azuka as she was giving advice to other women in business and industry, said, quote, bring value to the table and you'll always be welcome. So very true. You may want to hear the rest of Azuka's story. I'll include the link in the show notes below. And now, onward and upward, let's get back to this week in business history. This week, I'm going to dive deeper into a company that we all know, the Clorox Company. In fact, we've been fortunate to interview some of their senior leaders in a few really neat discussions before and during the pandemic, which of course has had a major impact on the company's business. Rick McDonald, the chief supply chain officer at Clorox, has joined us for a couple of episodes, and it's incredible to see his passion and love for the culture and the team at Clorox. So let's see where it all began with the Clorox company. So stay tuned, and as always, thanks again for joining us here on this episode of This Week in Business History, powered by our team here at Supply Chain Now. On May 3rd, 1913, five entrepreneurs would meet and set out on a new, exciting venture. Edward Hughes, who was in the timber and coal business, Charles Husband, a bookkeeper, Rufus Myers, a lawyer, William Hussey, a miner, and Archibald Taft, a banker who, interestingly enough, was the only one of the five that really knew chemistry. All five were based in Oakland, California, which sits just across 
the San Francisco Bay from the city of San Francisco. These entrepreneurs were highly focused on using brine from ocean water to produce sodium hypochlorite bleach. They wanted to take advantage of the saltwater deposits that naturally form in the brackish ponds around the Bay Area. Each contributed $100 and the Electroalkaline Company was born. Just a few months later, in August 1913, the group would acquire a manufacturing site to begin making its first product, Clorox Liquid Bleach. Ever wonder where the name Clorox came from? Well, it's a combination of the words chlorine and sodium hydroxide, the main two ingredients. When production cranked up, Clorox would initially be packaged in a five-gallon reusable container. Deliveries were made with a horse-drawn wagon and the electro-alkaline company would sell Clorox to area companies and sites to disinfect their facilities. In 1914, the company issued stock, raising about $75,000 in startup capital, which is around $2 million today. And first full-year sales were $7,996. The company would struggle in those early years, but one of its earliest investors would jump into the fray and essentially transform the company. William and Annie Murray were quite a dynamic husband-wife team, and both would be instrumental in ensuring the company's long-term success. As the company was floundering in 1916, the Murrays would jump into action to protect their investment. William Murray would optimize and streamline company operations while reworking the financing of the organization. Annie Murray, who was already running a successful grocery store in Oakland, came up with a transformational idea. Instead of only focusing on large industrial customers, what if the company made bleach that appealed to consumers, especially homemakers? The company would do just that and create a less concentrated liquid bleach safe for home use. Annie Murray would create awareness of this new version of Clorox by giving away 15-ounce sample bottles at her grocery store. The Murray's efforts were truly paramount to the young company's early success. But also helping the company was the public's growing awareness of the need to disinfect. Viruses had been discovered and identified in the 1890s. And the idea that microbes spread viruses would continue to gain steam in the ensuing decades. So Americans were looking for ways to kill germs in the early 20th century. But back to the Electroalkaline Company. Annie Murray's innovative product ideas in guerrilla marketing was driving demand. By the early 1920s, the company was shipping Clorox to the East Coast via the Panama Canal, which, by the way, they were one of the first West Coast companies to do so. Up until that time, as John Greathouse points out in an exceptional 2018 Forbes article, most of consumer goods would flow from the East Coast to the West Coast via rail. The company's manufacturing plant was producing about 48,000 bottles of bleach per day. But the name of the Electroalkaline Company didn't exactly roll off the tongue. So on May 28, 1928, the company would go public and rename itself to the Clorox Chemical Company. William Murray would become president of the company in 1929, a role that he would hold until his sudden and untimely death in 1941. By the 1930s, Clorox had become the industry leader, dominating liquid bleach sales across the United States. 
the company would continue to grow and prosper, even weathering the Great Depression without laying off a single employee. In 1938, the Clorox Chemical Company would establish its first East Coast plant in Jersey City, New Jersey. In 1940, Clorox was no longer produced with a rubber cork top and shifted to a plastic screw cap. During World War II, chlorine was being rationed due to its critical use for disinfecting wounds and many other things. But rather than dilute the product due to limited raw materials, the Clorox Chemical Company would elect to protect the quality brand that it had built and sell less product during the war. In 1957, Procter & Gamble would acquire the Clorox Chemical Company and rename it the Clorox Company. But the move was challenged by others in industry out of monopoly concerns, and the Federal Trade Commission would fight P&G in court for 10 years. 10 years. Imagine the legal bills. In 1967, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that P&G must divest itself of the Clorox Company. Thus, on January 2nd, 1969, the Clorox Company was independent once again. P&G and the Clorox Company would go on to compete with each other extensively, sometimes cutthroat, in the ensuing decades. Also in 1969, for the first time in 56 years, the Clorox Company would release and begin selling an original, internally developed product, Clorox II Color Safe Bleach. This would begin a strong, growth-oriented phase in the company's history, especially via acquisition. In 1969, Liquid Plumber is acquired. In 1970, Formula 409 is acquired. In 1972, Hidden Valley Ranch salad dressing mixes are acquired, which is really a story in and of itself. Steve Henson had invented Hidden Valley Ranch dressing while trying to feed his crew working in Alaska for oil companies. It was a tough audience. They didn't just eat anything. And Henson had to find a way to get them to eat what he had cooked, especially vegetables. So the scrambling part-time cook came up with a dressing based on what he had on hand. Buttermilk, mayonnaise, and a few spices and herbs. And with that, the legendary American salad dressing loved the world over was born, Hidden Valley Ranch. And yes... There was an actual Hidden Valley Ranch, which came into the picture after Steve Henson and his wife moved to California in his post-Alaska days. But we'll save that for another time. And those are just a few of the many moves that the Clorox Company leadership team would make throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Some successful, many unsuccessful. Forays into the detergent wood staining and paper goods and many other market niches were attempted. Some would say the company was struggling to find a successful diversification strategy. In 1988, the Clorox company would establish its global headquarters in downtown Oakland, California, while continuing to build out its enterprise across the world. In 1992, a new CEO entered the picture. Craig Sullivan, a 21-year Clorox veteran would become president and CEO. Shortly thereafter, Sullivan would order a complete assessment of company finances, strategy, and overall product portfolio. In particular, three components of the overall enterprise were identified as highly underperforming. Prince Castle, Deer Park, and the Moores-Domini lines. 
they accounted for 10% of company sales, 24% of the company workforce, but none of the profits. All three were soon sold off. That was just the beginning of what many view as a company turnaround led by President and CEO Craig Sullivan. One big thrust of Sullivan's strategy proved to be monumental. In the early 1990s, only 4% of net sales for the Clorox company would originate outside of the United States. Sullivan would then build a team devoted to growing international sales to 20% by 2000. A big part of that international growth strategy would be fueled by acquisition. In fact, Clorox would spend $1 billion acquiring 26 companies between 1993 and 1997, of which 23 were companies not based in the U.S. In fact, today, the Clorox company makes products in over 100 countries. In 2008, the company became one of the first major CPG manufacturers to develop and launch a line of naturally derived cleaners, its Greenworks line. In September 2020, 17-year company veteran Linda Rendell became CEO of the Clorox company, one of only 41 women that lead Fortune 500 companies. We've got to do something about that. Rendell had been one of the key organizational leaders to launch the Ignite Strategy, an initiative whose purpose is to ensure that environmental, social, and governance priorities are at the top of the list when it comes to factors that play a major role in corporate decision-making. Today, you might be surprised by the wide variety of brands that make up the Clorox company's portfolio. The Kingsford Company, well-known for its charcoal, Glad trash bags, Brita water filtration equipment, Burt's Bees products, which is indeed named after Burt Quimby, Casey Masterpiece barbecue sauces, and all that's just a tip of the iceberg. Of course, during the pandemic, Clorox saw demand for some of its products at all-time historic levels, and the company had to scramble and get creative to find ways to ramp up production. But as always, the Clorox company depends on its single most important business advantage, at least in my opinion, its people. An Atlanta-based department crew leader, Carlton Mitchell, who works at a Clorox factory that makes bleach and other cleaners, he was interviewed by NBC News in May 2020. He's been with the company for over 20 years. Mitchell spoke of his team's new noble effort saying, quote, when I came to work, it was a job. I clocked out and I went home. Just entirely different now. Now, when I come in, it's not just a normal nine to five job anymore. It's a mission now, end quote. It is a mission indeed. Love that and love what Carlton Mitchell and so many other manufacturing supply chain professionals have been doing to help us all for so long and especially during this pandemic. They are the salt of the earth and never get enough recognition. Many things have changed since 1916 at the Clorox company, but some thankfully have not. Innovation, quality, purpose, still all in a day's work. Well, that just about wraps up this edition of This Week in Business History. Big thanks to you, our listener, for tuning into the show each week. Most importantly, please check out the link in the show notes for more information on how to help healthcare efforts in India. Be sure to let us know how we're doing. We'd love to earn your review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast channels. 
that only helps us get the word out much more effectively. On behalf of the entire team here this week in business history and supply chain now, this is Scott Luton wishing all of our listeners nothing but the best. Hey, do good, give forward, and be the change that's needed. And on that note, we'll see you next time here on This Week in Business History. Thanks, everybody.